It is April 3rd, 1952 at Orgonon, Rangeley, Maine. I, Wilhelm Reich, am sitting alone. All people are gone. And I would like to add a few words to the recording we made yesterday and today of the disaster which struck Orgonon. There's nobody here to listen to what I'm saying. The recording apparatus is the only witness. I hope that someone will at some time in the future listen to this recording with great respect. When Wilhelm Reich recorded this message, he believed that he had just caused a nuclear disaster. For decades, Reich had been studying what he believed to be a new form of energy, and now an experiment had unleashed a dark and lethal form of this life force, which he called orgone. Reich's work on orgone energy either proved him to be a genius or a complete crank, depending on how skeptical you are. Reich's research led him to Norway, to the woods of Maine, to the doorstep of Albert Einstein in Princeton, and ultimately to his death in a federal prison. It's forgotten history. I'm Dick and Hyatt, this is Forgotten History, and joining me today are Bill Sanservino. Hi. And Sam Scarata. Hello. This story at, like ranges all over the world, but it does have a strong Princeton connection. And this is a long and extremely crazy story. <laughs> it begins in Vienna in the early 1920s with a man named Isidore Sager, and he was a psychoanalyst. And he was part of a small group of doctors who were disciples of Sigmund Freud. Sager was a blunt man, and he lacked social graces, um, to say the least. He was introduced uh, himself to a woman by saying, Have you ever concerned yourself with masturbation? <laughs> um, he coined the term sadomasochism, and he invented a cure for homosexuality. Oh, nice. And he was known for being dirty um, and having a dirty couch, like the psychiatrist's couch that the patients would sit on. He never cleaned his, so it was just, oh, like, it was just filthy. Like physically dirty? Yeah. Like yeah, he was just a, just a nasty, dirty guy. And one of Sadger's patients was also a psychiatrist. And in fact, he was one of Freud's most brilliant disciples. And he was the one that everyone thought that would someday be Freud's successor to lead the profession of psychiatry. And that was Wilhelm Reich. No. <laughs> Uh, on this dirty couch in Sadger's office, Wilhelm Reich would lie down and tell Sadger all about his life, and including because this is Freudian therapy, especially about his mother. This is the story that he told. He was born in March of 1897 in Dobrozanika, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in what is now Ukraine, and it was known as uh, Galician, California, and it was a dismal oil town. The father soon moved him to a t- place called uh, Drobzik in Bukovnia, again, I, I'm probably butchering these names, where his father leased a cattle farm that supplied beef to the Austrian army. And his father was a large, sadistic, and bullying man. Mm-hmm. And Reich was quoted as saying, I cannot remember my father ever having cuddled or treated me tenderly all that time. And oh. he beat him a lot. So he described his mother very differently. His mother was very beautiful. But both of the biographies I read said that when they looked at pictures of her, they said that she actually wasn't. (laughs) Just like they went out of their way to say, like, oh, yeah, um, she was a frumpy housefrau. Oh, my God. But anyway, to to him, she was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it says uh, a plump housefrau. It does not correspond with his memories. (laughs) Oh, no. And so his, his upbringing was an absolute psychodrama. 
Yeah, it sounds like the bed was seated pretty early. <laughs> yeah. This is my favorite episode of The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> so his, you know, his family history, they gave focused on his sexual history. And unfortunately, there's no avoiding talking about sex throughout this whole episode. We're not going like, to be graphic or anything, but uh, some of it is pretty weird. So at age four, he <coughs> slept in his servant's room. This is a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had, they all had servants, and when his parents were away, he slept in the servant's room where the maid would have sex with her boyfriend. And eventually, at age four, he fooled around with the maid, too. Four? Yeah. Okay. Oh. And he also says that at age 11, he lost his virginity to uh, a chambermaid. Oh, my God. But he may have, some people speculate he may have been lying about that to seem cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's real cool. <laughs> When I was four. <laughs> <laughs> but the real incident happened just when he was 12, when his mother began having an affair with his tutor. She would go to the tutor's room while the father napped after lunch. And Reich like, saw them getting together, and he overheard what was going on in the bedroom. And uh, he had like dirty fantasies about it. Yeah, it was, oh. it was pretty messed up. It, well, what made things worse was eventually his father began to suspect his mother was having an affair, and he kind of cornered young uh, Wilhelm and asked him to tell everything he knew, and he kind of caved in and told him what was going on. And so the father started beating the mother severely Yikes. and just made her miserable to the point where she poisoned herself. And it didn't work, and she was just, like, crippled and miserable and in the hospital for months. And then she poisoned herself two more times, and on the third attempt to kill herself, she succeeded. And for the rest of his life, he felt guilty about having ratted his mother out. Yeah, he's a narc. That's terrible. Well, he was only 12. Yeah, that's that's horrible. But still, if he was... From an Italian family, he wouldn't have gotten away with that. Oh, jeez. God. Uh, oh, they were also Jewish, I forgot to mention. Uh, that's, not, that's not important to the uh, psychodrama, but it does come into play later. So after this, in his teenage years, he fell in love with a cousin, and he gave her all of his late mother's jewelry. And his father was felt very guilty and depressed about having driven his wife to suicide. And he went off, and uh, he pretended to fish in a pond in the winter, and caught pneumonia. He would just stand there naked in a pond until he caught pneumonia, and he died of that. So that um, if he had just committed suicide, his family couldn't have collected the insurance policy. Um, oh, wow, that's creative. I, yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah. it's pretty creative. i got to file that one away. I, yeah. I need to, how else is he, um, like, how is he pretending to fish? Like, was he just telling people he was going to Yeah, he was like, like, I'm going to go fishing. That's a great question. Uh, I don't. I don't I know the exact details. How far he carried out the scam? Like he put on the fishing waders and like <laughs> as if he was going into. You know, I think he. Yeah, I think he tried to maintain the plausible uh, deniability, but anyway, it worked, and he he caught pneumonia and he died, and uh, Reich collected. He inherited the estate and, along with a sizable um, insurance policy. So he had he had lots of money. This was in 1914, and this was also at. When World War One broke out, and this the estate was in a very bad place um, to bad be during place World War One. Financially or located uh, geographically, <coughs> because it was within the Austria Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it was right on the border with Russia. So soon after the war started, the, the Russian army marched into the area and captured the estate and captured Wilhelm Reich. And because he was Jewish, they were um, going to march him off to the Gulag, mm-hmm. and. Because the, they were uh, also extremely anti-Semitic. They weren't Nazis, but they just hated Jewish people. And one of the stable hands bribed the soldiers to let him go. So he got away. Because of the war, there was massive inflation of the currency, so his inheritance became worthless. So now the Russians occupied the estate. He, he was never going to get that back for the rest of his life. He had no money. He was penniless. So he went off and he joined the Austrian army. Mm-hmm. We served in Italy. That sounds like up to that point he had a crap sandwich for, for life. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't get any better for quite a while. So he fought in World War One. There's not much information on, about that. And then he went to medical school in Vienna. 
Well, first he he went to law school in Vienna mm-hmm. to try to become a lawyer, but he hated it. He thought it was boring, so he switched to medical school. He was basically penniless. He had to beg and scrape to get money to go to medical school, and he proved to be a brilliant student. And uh, he got interested in psychiatry, and he became a disciple of Sigmund Freud. And Freud really liked him. He caught on to his theories really quickly. Maybe he related to the whole Oedipal thing. I don't know. And he eventually joined the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. But it was still a pretty dire situation because after the war, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, and Vienna, its capital, was like was pretty much starving. Um, they had no food, and uh, even Freud didn't have enough money to heat his office. Mm-hmm. And Reich was down to eating and ate a loaf of bread for a whole week, and living on oatmeal and this watery soup that they handed out in the student campaign, and he barely survived. Like, he had bad health problems, but he lived. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't. They, they starved during this time. Oh Just to um, put the icing on the cake, uh, a flu epidemic hit, and it killed a whole bunch of people, including Freud's daughter, Sophie, oh. and tens of thousands of other people. Reich, at this point, was so malnourished that he collapsed during a lecture, and Freud was working in an unheated study where his ink froze, and he accepted... <gasps> Payment in potatoes from his patients. Oh my god! So this is pretty dire. Yeah. And he even by those standards, even compared to the other people, he was poor, and he had this inferiority complex about his fellow students who were supported by their families. And he was also a country bumpkin compared to them. They were like yeah. urban and sophisticated. Yeah. Um, so one day he was dissecting a corpse with a fellow medical student, and they were working on the brain together, and he fell in love with this woman. I thought you were going to say he fell in love with the corpse. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. that was... <laughs> he tried to get her to sleep with him, and he, and he gave her a book about how female frigidity was bad to convince her that it was a good idea to sleep with him. Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to relate this to modern stereotypes, even though it's inappropriate. Like, he, he seemed like sort of an incel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but then he became a falsel. Sorry, <laughs> we have to cut this out. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> but so yeah, like a com- first he was a combination like pickup artist. He was like, "Hey, you're uh, like read this book about well, yeah." <laughs> but he did uh, sleep with prostitutes, and he had an affair with a woman in Italy when he was a soldier. So he wasn't like actually like in- full insult. right. Uh, but then he read a book by this guy named Otto Weiniger. Um, it was called Sex and Character, and that said that abstinence was good. Oh, so okay. he became a Valsell briefly. Okay. <laughs> the, the brief Valsell era. <laughs> yeah. And so he was, um, he said he was disgusted by the promiscuity of the upper class girls at the university who would sleep with everyone but him. <laughs> and then he got so depressed about being rejected that he almost killed himself. This is feeling very, like, incel subreddit. Like, this is, <laughs> it's very upsetting. There's no real comparison, but it does, like, it, it's like history repeats itself, yeah. or at least it echoes. Yeah. If the Reddit had existed back then, I would have loved to see what his post would have oh been. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was about then that Freud referred to him his first patient, who was a waiter suffering from impotence and a compulsion to speedwalk. Wait, why? <laughs> why did he love speedwalking? I don't know. <laughs> that was part of his uh, psychosis. He did eventually have an affair with one of his former patients. He wouldn't sleep with his patients, but as soon as he was ready to sleep with them, he would like stop seeing them as a patient and then sleep with them. That Even was if considered they like ready to end treatment. Yeah, like he, <laughs> he was... just decided like, all right, so he I'm was good an to ethic, go. Ethical guy too. Yeah. Well, this this actually like that was not uncommon back then among Ew. this circle. So he had an affair with this woman. And unfortunately, she died possibly from an unlicensed abortion that Reich made her get. And the mother went after Reich for this. The mother of the girl said that, you know, she blamed him for causing her death. And Reich psychoanalyzed the mother offhand and said that she was only blaming him because she was attracted to him. And the mother gassed herself to death. Oh, my God. So then one of this woman's friends was very traumatized by the experience, and she entered therapy with Wilhelm Reich. And her name was Annie Pink, and eventually their therapy ended, and they got married and uh, had a couple of kids together. So his patients were pretty much his dating pool. <laughs> yeah, pretty <laughs> Until much. Until they died. Oh. They killed themselves. 
So there's a stereotype about psychotherapy where it was just all these rich people, but uh, Vienna at the time was, it was very socialist, and they were doing all these public health things, and one of them was they created a psychotherapy clinic, uh, which was a public clinic where people could go, like even working class people could go and get psychoanalyzed for a small fee. Mm -hmm. So people like the waiter and just other people like that. And this is also when he started to develop his own theories that were kind of branching off from Freud. One of them was that the goal of therapy was to become orgiastically potent, which would mean having orgasms that had certain characteristics, like releasing, <laughs> releasing emotions and losing yourself, losing your ego while you wow. had the orgasm. And if you didn't do that, then something was wrong with you and you needed therapy. So this was kind of related to Freud who said that abstinence made people weak and degenerate and good weaklings who later become lost in the crowd. And there was this idea that if your libido was dammed up, the energy would build up and all these neuroses would crop up because of your repressed libido. Okay. So that was the basic outline of his theory. So he had a daughter with Annie and they had kind of a comfortable life. And by 1923, he was kind of the acknowledged leader of the second generation of psychoanalysts. How, how old was he at this point? He was in his, uh, let's see, what, he was like 20, 26, I think. Oh my god, <laughs> so young. This sounds like we've just discussed like 50 years of somebody's life. I know. Like, <laughs> no, nothing Nothing about his life is boring. Like, <laughs> it was like constantly crazy stuff happening throughout his entire life. He was considered to be an excellent, an excellent diagnostician. Even though people started to become skeptical of his orgasm theory, Freud thought it should not be central to psychoanalysis. He wrote a book called Character Analysis, and this pioneered something called ego psychology, which is a technique of analyzing patients' defenses. And this actually became the dominant practice of psychoanalysis through the 1950s, including in the United States. And part of it was the psychiatrist would deliberately provoke and confront, confront and irritate the patient to penetrate through their character defenses. Uh-huh. Sounds sounds pretty miserable, but... That's, that's uh, terrible. Everyone... Like sitting in a room with me for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> he focused on orgasm so much that Freud started to get annoyed with him. <laughs> Which, if Sigmund Freud is telling you that you're too obsessed with sex, like, <laughs> how, how obsessed with sex are you? And he, he kind of humiliated Reich a couple of times by cutting him down when he was giving presentations. He wrote a book called... Um, I forget what it was called, but he wrote a book about his orgasm theory. It was, oh, it was called The Function of the Orgasm, and it was like 250 pages long, and he gave it to Freud to read and, and ask for his approval. And Freud kind of picked it up, and it was like, it's this long? Like, really? Like, I thought the function of the orgasm was pretty obvious. <laughs> At the same time he was getting into politics, in 1927, he, he was a social democrat. He was at a demonstration in 1927 where right-wing fascist soldiers shot and killed a whole bunch of social democratic demonstrators. And Reich dodged all these bullets. Mm-hmm. And the response, the, the social democratic party had this militia of like 50,000 people that they could have called up and fought in the streets, but they didn't do it. And Reich was so disgusted by their lack of fighting spirit that he decided to join the communist party instead because they were much more radical. Freud refused to analyze Reich. He got tuberculosis and he went to Davos, Switzerland to recover, and he fell into a deep depression because of his rejection by Freud. He started to combine his politics with psychology. So he developed this theory that sexual frustration was preventing the masses from embracing revolutionary change. And if they were liberated and if they were polyamorous, there would be no war, there'd be no sadism, there'd be no destructive social forces of any kind. And he came back from Davos, and people described him as being angry, paranoid, and suspicious. Um, so he was now an ardent communist, and he went to a Nazi rally where he was going to spearhead an attack and create a civil war. So he marched with the unemployed and stuff like that. Like, he was a really radical leftist. He also believed in eugenics. He said that latent schizophrenics and morbid depressives should not be allowed to bear children. He visited Moscow because it was the communist paradise, even though there were some real disconnects with his philosophy and Lenin's. Like, Lenin thought that free love was bourgeois and was conservative in terms of morality. He visited a commune while he was there where people shared everything, including underpants, and he thought that was great. So now it's the early 1930s, and he moves to Berlin, so people there were more receptive to his ideas. 
and he argued that family and marriage were bourgeois shackles. And he invented the term sexual revolution during that time. So he kind of encouraged a lot of things that were sort of forward thinking in terms of sex education. Mm -hmm. But he also encouraged like teenagers to have sex and he wanted to... No, 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 with each other, with each other. And among his ideas, he wanted to legalize contraception and legalize abortion and divorce and promote sex ed. And this was at the time when the liberal opinion was that contraception should be allowed within marriage. So he was a radical mm-hmm. on that front. But his emphasis on adolescent sexuality creeped people out a little bit. People were very suspicious of that. <laughs> and the Communist Party branded him a counter-revolutionary because he, they said he was trying to make brothels of their youth associations. <laughs> At the same time as the communists were getting fed up with him, the psychoanalysts were starting to ostracize him because of the fact that he was a communist. Mm-hmm. So every group that he was a part of was causing him to be ostracized from the other ones. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that he was a Jew made him a target for the Nazis. So yeah, he was a psychoanalyst, a communist, and a Jew, and the Nazis hated all of those people. Shortly after the Nazis took over, they ransacked his apartment, and they stole a watch, a copy of the Kama Sutra, and a book of erotic Japanese woodcuts. And Woodcuts? Yeah, like prints of... It was like a primitive form of anime. Okay. This was was hentai back in the 1930s. So he fled from the Nazis, and he stayed in hotels under false names, so they wouldn't catch up to him. And in 1933, the first concentration camp opened up in Dachau, and that camp was for social democrats and communists, and some of his friends were sent there. And so he fled Berlin with his family. They ended up hiking over the mountains with knapsacks. His family continued to Vienna, but Reich returned to Berlin alone for reasons that nobody could figure out. He just went back to his old apartment and filled his backpack with old clothes and then left again. So nobody knows why he took that risk. He was just it was so... never explained, ever. Yeah. <laughs> as Maybe he went back for a copy reading. of the uh, Kama Sutra. His head died. I took it. I can't believe it's not here. So they, the Nazis raided the Institute of Sexual Science where he was working and they burned a bunch of his books. This was not the last time his books would be burned. When he returned to Vienna, he gave a lecture about fascism, and Freud then banned him from giving more lectures because he was afraid that the Nazis would... It would draw too much attention from the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you know, the Nazis did eventually take over in Austria, and four of Freud's five sisters eventually died in Auschwitz. Death pretty much surrounds this guy. Yeah, he went to every place in, in the 20th century where... There was just death and mayhem. So he got out before that. He fled to Denmark in 1934 by ship. According to many of his colleagues, this was the point where he kind of went insane. Other people say that he was perfectly fine and everyone else was just wrong. About how old is he at this point? Let's see. Well, 1934. So he was in his uh, his late 30s. He was asked to resign from the International Psychoanalytic Association for being a communist. And he was kicked out of the, part, the Communist Party in Denmark, even though he wasn't a communist, in the, in the Communist Party in Denmark. So they kicked him out before he had a chance to join. And he was still being hunted by the Nazis, but he continued to attract followers. He published a book explaining the psychological roots of fascism, which disavowed at the time by the communists, but later did become popular in America. And the, his theory was that Hitler's hatred of the Jews was from an unconscious fear of castration, because of their practice of circumcision. And that the swastika represented two interlocking figures having sex. Okay. <laughs> did, did he know that it, the swastika, swastika was not a German a Nazi symbol originally? I he, don't know. I didn't read this book. So the, the book was called The Mass Psychology of Fascism, and it painted the Nazis as generally being sexually repressed, which wasn't completely accurate because they eventually co-opted some of the sex reformers' arguments and in some cases, they were just libertines and massive perverts themselves. So, like, they had no problem mm-hmm. having tons of sex, but they were just uh, evil. Yeah. But the ideals were influential. Like, if you've ever, did you read 1984? They had described a rally where everyone's, like, energy is being devoted into screaming slogans and stuff. And, like, the, they say that that energy was sex gone sour because they banned people from having sex mm-hmm. in the book. So that was um, Orwell having been influenced by Reich. When he reached Denmark, he was met with skepticism. He told a scientist named Erikson that all living creatures radiated, radiated a blue light, 
that became more intense during sex, and you could observe this during the naked eye. So he invited Erickson to observe couples making love on the beach in darkness and said that you would be able to see the blue light. Did these couples know that they were being observed? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I was wondering oh. that. But, but at this point, Erickson decided that he was insane. And when you hang out with a lot of psychiatrists and you start talking about seeing blue light and things no one else can see, they are going to start diagnosing you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them said that he was basically uh, out of his mind, including Anna Freud, who was... Freud's daughter. He began an affair with uh, a dancer, Elsa Lindenberg. He moved out of Denmark to Sweden, where he was harassed by police officers who thought he was running a brothel because people were going in and out of his office and they didn't know what psychoanalysis was. (laughs) And they were like, this must be a brothel. Yeah. He had to move out of Sweden pretty quickly. He got a divorce from Annie because he was generally a terrible husband. And then he developed this theory about vegetative currents which is sort of a life energy that flows through the body. It was like a variation on the idea of the libido. And this was received skeptically. Because I guess the libido was supposed to be more of a metaphor rather than physical energy you could measure. And he developed a method of therapy that was based on this theory, um, which was he would have the patient strip down, men completely naked, women to their underclothes, and he would do massage to like loosen what he called armor, which was like your neuroses would be defense mechanisms, physical defense mechanisms in your musculature that had to be attacked. <laughs> okay. So he would press painfully down on their jaws and their necks and their chests and the backs of their thighs to attack this armor. And it also involved breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, some people thought this was brilliant. Other people thought this was madness. Yeah. So he went to Norway now where he started doing scientific experiments and research to vindicate this idea about energy currents. And he ended up doing experiments kind of like Masters and Johnson. Or, uh, have you ever heard of them? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they, they were researchers in the 50s where they hooked up people with electrodes while they had sex and stuff so they could measure the electrical currents and arousal and things like that. And he was doing sort of similar research, but he really wasn't very good in the lab. He had no experience of doing lab work before that. And every time he got negative results, he would excuse them by saying the subject was too repressed. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, you know, that way he just guaranteed he had positive results. Not great research protocol there. He moved on from that to study microbiology, which he had last done two decades earlier. That was the last time he had handled a microscope as a medical student. And he thought that he could substitute his naive and playful childlike curiosity for expertise. And he said... I'm not a megalomaniac. I just have an agonizingly good intuition. I sense most things before I actually comprehend them. And the most important intuitions turn out to be correct. I think if you have to say I'm not a megalomaniac, <laughs> you probably are one. <laughs> so this is where he made one of his most controversial discoveries was when he started looking at microorganisms. He, he made soup bullion and put that under a microscope, at which point he saw minuscule blue vesicles breaking off and pulsating. And he thought he had discovered something called a bion, which was not a life form, but like a precursor to life, a little blob of energy that would <laughs> combine with other ones to go to, to like form amoebas and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, the scientific understanding of this was that amoebas came from other amoebas. There would be spores that would yeah. turn into amoebas, yeah. which is what everyone learns in biology class. But he was like, no, it's these bions that are combining to form microorganisms, basically life arising from non-life. Spontaneous generation, which has been out of fashion for, oh, you know, 300 years <laughs> at that point. Basically a pre-scientific idea. So he took this theory to the scientific community, and it was universally derided as being completely worthless. Um, the Lancet said it was worthless. Um, there was a guy named Albert Fisher who was head of biological institute in Copenhagen, and he said that Reich was just observing something called when he, he saw what he thought was a bion. It was something called Brownian motion, which is where molecules basically knock a particle around, and you can see it moving around, and it's not moving by itself. It's just yeah. water molecules or something. Yeah. And uh, another scientist named Kreiberg said that Reich knew less about anatomy and bacteriology than a first-year medical student. <laughs> so there was a lot of hostility toward him from the scientific community, but it was mixed with sort of prudishness about the fact that he was doing sex research. So people wanted to kick him out of the country. Mm-hmm. And so he said, my ideas are being prosecuted because 
everyone is, else is repressed. He compared himself to Galileo because the establishment <laughs> was attacking him. He also started to research cancer. He decided that cancer was the result of sexual stasis and political repression, and that if he could get some bions, he could fight cancer. So he would gather uh, bions and inject them into his cheek where he thought he had the cancer growth, and Ooh. it went away, so it worked. So oh, he right. cured cancer. Wow. Oh, my God. That's crazy. He found particular bions in sand that he thought were special and were emitting this kind of radiation, although other scientists said they weren't radioactive at all. Mm-hmm. It was just sand. <laughs> He was seeing more of this blue fog and blue ghostly energy everywhere. He called the energy that the sand bions were emitting orgone energy. Mm -hmm. And he tried to concentrate that by building a box that had the sand in it and a copper Faraday cage and um, a few other layers. Mm -hmm. He would sit in this box and see this gray blue fog and blue vapor emanating from his body. And he thought that was the orgone energy. Was this the first time he uh, established the term orgone? Yes, that, yeah. Um, so in 1939, he left Norway for the United States. And he began an affair with a woman named Ilsa Ollendorf. He had lots of affairs with lots of women over the years. He did eventually marry her. So he built a small box with magnifying glass to look at the blue moving vapors that he saw and the yellow-white streaks and dots of light given off by the cultures inside the... But the bacteria culture, so he could observe this life energy. Again, um, unclear why no one else would, had seen this before. I don't know about you, but like I don't see blue energy everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I have ever seen blue energy. There's one time there's a little bit too much vodka involved. <laughs> but uh, no, I really can't say I've seen blue energy. You guys are both wearing blue today. Maybe. Oh. Um, hmm. Wow. No, I'm not. I'm wearing black. No, that's blue. It's oh, navy. using the blue energy. <laughs> oh. oh! Or maybe the orgones um, implanted themselves in your brains and told you to wear blue today. And it was a subconscious decision. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> he tried to do a control experiment where he looked in an empty box and he saw that the blue energy and stuff was still there. How so, about that? Wow. Well... So obviously, this they did not emanate from the bions. And so he wrote that maybe they were the products of his imagination after all, as all the physicists had implied. But no, that's not the case, because <laughs> he looked at the night sky through a hollow tube and saw a vivid flickering in the dark patches between the stars. This was organ energy in outer space. Oh, my God. So because of this, he realized that organ energy was omnipresent. So he saw the blue fog in varying intensities wherever he looked. And in December 1940, he built his first full-sized orgone accumulator. This was kind of a throwback to the 18th century. There was a, a sort of a huckster in France who built something called the Leyden jar, which was a big bucket where you would sit and accumulate vital energy. Mm-hmm. And it was like briefly a fad in France. But this idea of uh, life energy is common to a lot of different forms of pseudoscience and folk medicine. Like there's acu- in acupuncture, there's there's key. And in chiropractic, there's um, a life energy called intelligence that comes from the spine. Um, what? Really? Yeah. That's what chiropractic is. They're trying oh my to... Oh, I never knew that. They're trying... When they crack your back, they're trying to, like, realign your spine so that the life energy flows through it better. Oh, my God. I never knew that. Okay. Well, this, this contra- contrasts with science, which tries to explain <laughs> everything through... Yeah. Known physical forces, chemistry, electricity, and things like, like that. Scientology has engrams. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, Scientology is obviously correct science. Yeah. Um, but yeah, engrams. Like, yes. How can it be fake? <laughs> you know, that's where all the real advances have come from. And that might be one reason why the scientific community was so hostile toward Reich. Mm-hmm. It was probably a combination of the fact that he was a sexual libertine compared to them and that he was going against everything mm-hmm. that science had discovered up to that point. So he applied, in America, he applied for a patent for the orgone accumulator, and the patent office rejected it because it was nonsense. So at this point, it was fair to say that he was not being received well by the scientific community. So instead of engaging with scientific institutions anymore, he tried a shortcut, which we'll talk about after the break.
first of all, I want to thank everyone who's listening to this and spreading the word. And welcome to new listeners from Reddit, where I posted in the New Jersey forum. So I got some good response there. And as usual, if you want to help the show a five-star rating or better on Apple Podcasts goes a long way, or better yet, a review. And secondly, I have an update on Jean Zielinski, who was the subject of the last episode. That was the woman who cut her mother's head off and threw it on the front steps of the Capitol, of the State House. So go back and listen to episode eight if you haven't heard it, and you want to know what we're talking about. Yeah. Turns out that after the show came out, I got a phone call from someone who used to work at the hospital where Jean Zielinski was sent. And I'm not going to give this person's name or any identifying information except to say that they did have contact with Zelensky while she was a patient there. Mm-hmm. And this person confirmed a lot of what was said about her in the newspaper articles that used as the reference for the last episode. And she added some additional details about what she was like. Um, according to this person, Jean Zelensky was mostly quiet. Mm-hmm. She would sit by herself crocheting and was not very social and was in most ways a model patient. And she would always be on time for events and always followed the rules. But if another patient tried to take something that she felt was hers, like sit in her special seat, she would get very angry and argumentative, mm-hmm. but never physical. She did have permission to leave the hospital occasionally, but she was always very nervous about it. Um, she would do things like go to the Quaker Bridge Mall to shop or see a movie mm-hmm. and things like that. She wasn't manipulative. She didn't seem to hear voices. She didn't seem to have delusions, but she was just very rigid and withdrawn. And she didn't talk about the murder. Um, the only time she ever did discuss it was when a pastor took her out to, to her mother's grave, which she'd never done before. And that was the only time this person saw her show any emotion mm-hmm. about the murder. And it was hard to tell what she was thinking because she kept to herself so much. And when we did the episode, we questioned whether she was really a danger to the public after being in the hospital for a while. And this person says that when they met Jean early on in her hospitalization, she she did seem completely harmless. But then there was an incident. Jean and some of the other patients were in a mock-up kitchen when a mouse came in and started running around. And most of the patients shied away, but Jean went after the mouse so violently that this person thought that maybe she was dangerous after all. But that was early on. As time went on, they came to think that she really wasn't a threat to anyone but her mother. And... Even when she was provoked, she never attacked other patients. She never started fights. And this person thought it was a scandal that patients were held so long, which, as we pointed out, was often longer than they would have served if they had been convicted in in court. So I'd like to thank that person for calling in with information. We love to hear new sides of the stories and feedback on the show. And you can do that by sending me email at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. Or go on our Facebook page, which you can search Forgotten History NJ on Facebook and it'll come up. And now back to the show. So having been rejected by the scientific community... Reich went to the top of the scientific community, the most famous scientist in the world, Albert Einstein, who lived in Princeton. Where was Reich living at this time? I think he was living in New York at this time. Eventually he moved to Maine. So he wrote a letter to Albert Einstein, and here's what the letter said. Several years ago, I discovered a specific biologically effective energy which in many ways behaves differently from anything that is known about electromagnetic energy. (laughs) No, I shouldn't do the voice. Okay. It dipped dipped into the general from Hogan's Heroes. (laughs) Hogan! (laughs) The, The matter is too complicated and sounds too improbable to be explained clearly in a brief letter. I can only indicate that I have evidence that this energy, which I have called orgone, exists not only in living organisms, but also in the soil and in the atmosphere. It is visible and can be concentrated and measured, and I am using it with some success in research on cancer therapy. The matter is becoming too much for me for practical and financial reasons, and broad cooperation is needed. There is some reason to believe that it might be of use in the fight against the fascist plague. I hesitate to follow the usual route of sending a report to the Academy of Physics, And you may find my caution strange, but it is based on extremely negative experiences. 
it may be surprising that Einstein responded to this letter. Yeah, I was gonna say like that sounds kind of unhinged. Yeah, but, <laughs> well, yeah, but if you know anything about Einstein, the theories that he came up with were out of left field, totally unheard of, and you know, mm-hmm. some yeah. of them took decades to prove. Uh-huh. Well, the difference was there was evidence to support them. Right, but um, I, I, he might have just been a guy who says, well, maybe this is true, well, but I'm willing to at least look into it. Right, yeah, yeah, and that's true. He was open-minded, and he also was full of goodwill toward a fellow emigre, and he also would, wanted to hear about any idea that would help fight fascism. He was also, furthermore, on top of this, an admirer of Sigmund Freud, he reserved every Tuesday evening for reading Freud's essays. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so he wanted to hear from a disciple of Freud. So he said, sure, come over. We can talk about this. So on January 13th, 1941, Reich arrived at Einstein's home half an hour early and t- spoke with Einstein for almost five hours. And he got Einstein to observe the flickering. And Einstein told Reich, I see the flickering all the time. Could it not be in my eyes? And Reich said, if you looked at them through the magnifying glass, they would appear bigger. And he told Einstein that if you made an orgone accumulator, there would be a rise in temperature inside the accumulator from the orgone energy. And Einstein said that that was impossible, but if it would be true, it would be a great bomb, like a bomb in science. Mm -hmm. Reich said, can you understand now why people consider me crazy? And Einstein said, I can believe that. (laughs) He kind of gave Reich the benefit of the doubt to carry out this experiment. Mm-hmm. Again, which may seem weird, but he kind of, as Bill said, had a soft spot for having an open mind. Mm-hmm. And he even sort of engaged with cranks now and then. Mm-hmm. Like the writer Upton Sinclair had this idea of a mental radio. Like he claimed he could communicate telepathically with his sister. And he wrote a book about it. And Einstein gave a positive review of the book. So he, he wasn't completely... You know, he was very open-minded. Reich built a small orgone accumulator and took it to Princeton two weeks later. And they put it in the cellar of Einstein's house, and they put it on a small table with a control thermometer three or four feet away. And Reich warned Einstein not to spend more than an hour in the room with the device and to breathe some fresh air immediately after exposure to it. So after a while, the accumulator was one degree higher than the outside air. And Einstein wrote Reich a letter ten days later. And he said that, He'd experimented along with an assistant and found that there was a convection current of heat from the ceiling to the tabletop, that when they took the accumulator apart, there was still a temperature difference in the area where the accumulator was, which proved that the accumulator itself was not generating any heat. Any temperature difference was due to air circulation and heat transfer within the room, and that, quote, through these experiments, I regard the matter as completely solved. And this was devastating to Reich, Mm -hmm. because he had hoped that Einstein would report his discovery to the Academy of Physics and invite him to join the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. Reich then replied to Einstein with a 26-page letter that reasserted his claims and said, I know this is a great deal to accept all at once. It sounds mad, and I cannot cope with it by myself. And Einstein did not reply. Left on red. Yeah, he he was left (laughs) on. He kept writing letters to Einstein, and Einstein's secretary put them in a file called the Curiosity File, that went along with letters from flat earthers. Oh my god! And all kinds of other people. Does that like file that. still exist? <laughs> like, is that in an archive somewhere? I would love to check that out. Yeah, it probably is. It's probably. Oh my god. Probably at Princeton. The X Files. Oh my god, it's the X-Files. <laughs> And they're all true, <laughs> just like orgone theory. Yes. So he unfortunately started using orgone to treat cancer. He took on a cancer patient named Mrs. Pops, and he treated her with the orgone box. And he took on three other patients and put them in the orgone box, and he believed this was successful. How big was the box? Was it was, like, big enough to fit in. There are pictures of it. I'll put one in the show. Yeah. It's, like, a big... It looks like a phone booth or something. Oh. Oh, okay. But it's, like... I, I guess, it, like, pe- people would build them in different sizes, but they're basically just big enough to sit in, like, a coffin, I guess. But, but it would be upright. Some of them had a seat in them. Um, so he set up something called the Orgone and Cancer Research Laboratory in Forest Hills to administer cures. So again, whenever it didn't work, he would find a reason why the cancer came back. Mm-hmm. Like he would say the patient was sexually charged to a degree they couldn't tolerate. 
which would cause them to flee the orgone accumulator. Um, another one got claustrophobia from it. Sometimes he concluded that the, the tumor, as the tumor dissolved from the orgone, it would release toxic tumor stuff everywhere and go elsewhere in the body. And another person, he said, came to him late, too late to for the orgone accumulator to work because he had heard a rumor that Reich was insane and delayed going to him for treatment. A rumor. <laughs> he also said that his work threatened the medical and radium establishments, and that's why it wasn't being accepted by the Is medical community. Is he accepting payment for these treatments? That's a good question, and that comes up later on in an FDA trial of him. So he, here's something that he wrote in a communication to his followers. He said, I have to go on, even if all the patients which we are taking into the experiment should die for two or three or four years to come. I should not stop under any circumstances because I have seen many times and quite clearly that the orgone radiation exists. It charges up the blood and it destroys cancerous growth on any part of the body and that it strengthens the body and that it removes pain. So after the outbreak of World War II, he fell under suspicion by the FBI for being a subversive because he had formerly been a communist. Mm -hmm. And they detained him and took him to Ellis Island for a while. So that was mistaken because he he had become very critical of the Communist Party uh-huh. after the Soviet Union invaded Finland. He decided that Stalin was a bad guy, so he was no communist by the time he came to America. And it was probably a case of mistaken identity because there was someone named William Bill Reich who was a communist in New York. And so... No relation. Yes. <laughs> All bills yes, are related. Yes, generally, yes. So after World War II ended... His work started to become very popular because there was this avant-garde community of bohemians and beatniks who were looking for a new philosophy that wasn't conformist, and Reich's work certainly fit the bill. The radical left had turned to anarchy and libertinism, Mm -hmm. and Reich, after losing faith in communism, but Reich really actually wasn't as much of a libertine as he was sometimes interpreted, because he wasn't totally in favor of just rampant promiscuity. He was more saying that sex would be good in a loving relationship. And he was against pornography, and he was against dirty jokes, so he would hate living in modern society. And he was also against homosexuality. He would not treat homosexuals. A lot of the beatniks of this era became Reikians. Saul Bellow did Reikian therapy, but he became disillusioned by it. William Burroughs, uh, there's a photo of Kurt Cobain inside one of Burroughs' accumulators. Norman Mailer, J.D. Salinger, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac. And Sean Connery, while he was playing James Bond, <laughs> had an orgone accumulator. Wow. Oh my That's why he was so good at it. Yeah. Yeah. He was, his brain was free. Hey, get this. This is Sean Connery going into an orgone accumulator. Uh, it's, it's time to go into the orgone accumulator <laughs> and charge up my orgone energy. <laughs> so some people thought that this was a placebo effect, why people felt better after going in an orgone accumulator. Pearls thought that all this was a placebo effect and he thought that the idea of armor was paranoid and that it was a mistake to think of libido as physical energy. In 1947, there was a major turning point. He was the subject of a magazine article, uh, Mildred Brady, and she wrote, uh, she interviewed all these Reikians who had orgone boxes and were also sort of free love hippies. Mm -hmm. And she wrote an article called The New Cult of Sex and Anarchy. And it came out in the 1947 issue of Harper's. And actually, this was a criticism of Reich, but it made it seem extremely cool, because who doesn't want a cult of sex and anarchy? Yeah. Like, if I read that headline, I'd be like, hell yeah. And that came out in the 1947 issue of Harper's, and that attracted the attention of the authorities, in addition to gaining him a bunch of new followers Mm -hmm. who liked sex and anarchy. Reich was sort of annoyed by this. Like, he considered himself a scientist, he didn't want to start a cult of sex and anarchy. Mm-hmm. He thought the article was horrible. There was a guy named Ellsworth Baker, and he was in charge of Marlboro Hospital in New Jersey. He was a medical director at Marlboro Hospital in New Jersey, and he became a Reikian, and everyone under him also became Reikians. So this hospital started to have orgone boxes installed and stuff like that. And the director of the hospital thought that the hospital was becoming a den of Reikian iniquity, and he refused Baker's request to experiment with orgone accumulators. So in 1948, Baker was called before a medical tribunal and accused of quackery, and the doctors under him at Marlboro were all fired. And the person leading this investigation, the deputy commissioner for institutions and agencies in New Jersey, was one Dr. Henry Cotton Jr. Oh my god. (laughs) Is that the tooth guy? 
that's the son of the tooth guy. Oh. But he was not. He was a straight and narrow doctor. He had gone to medical school. You know, he, he was completely conventional. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of tormented by his legacy, his father's legacy. And he eventually did commit suicide. For those who don't know, that's a reference to your first podcast? Yes, that was all about Henry Cotton, the man who thought could, insanity could be cured by pulling out people's teeth. So among other criticisms, uh, they questioned Baker about patients who emerged from therapy covered in bruises uh, because of all the pressing and poking that they did. And he replied, yes, sometimes there are bruises. People bruise very easily. And so Baker actually ended up resigning from the hospital because he had so many patients at this point, he didn't need the hospital job. And he just became Reich's acolyte. They created an association of medical ergonomy in 1947 at Reich's suggestion, which exists today in Princeton. It was in New York at first. When did it move to Princeton? 1980. There was another article after the first one by Mildred Brady. It was called The Strange Case of Wilhelm Reich. And this one was devoted to ridiculing his theories, especially the ergon box and cancer cures. Uh, I don't know who would be so vulgar as to ridicule those theories, but, but they did. So, so obvious fake news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And one of the lines from the article was, the man who blames both neuroses and cancer on unsatisfactory sexual activities has been repudiated by only one scientific journal. Because this was an interesting phenomenon. Like, most scientists did not take him seriously enough to really write a rebuttal of him. They would just dismiss it out of hand as being... Yeah quackery so if you were interested in it and you mostly what you would hear from was his supporters so it was only like professionally refuted once uh that builder brady could find yeah there were a lot there was a lot more in norway where he was doing the original experiments Uh where serious scientists were picking apart why his experiments were wrong Mm -hmm. i don't think those have ever been translated into english so she went on reikiites declare that orgiastic impotence is the primary cause of all cancer all neurosis all psychosis Impotence, frigidity, perversions, cardiovascular hypertension, hyperthyroidism, constipation, hemorrhoids, epilepsy, peptic ulcers, obesity, narcotic addiction, alcoholism, and the common cold. Uh, and the journal Psychosomatic Medicine dismissed organ theory as a surrealistic creation and dismissed the book The Function of the Orgasm as nuttier than a fruitcake. Is <laughs> that uh, a technical term? <laughs> yeah, so by this point, Reich was denying that he had ever said that he had the ability to cure cancer. And after this article came out, he he dismissed Brady as intelligent, but obviously sex-hungry woman. <laughs> oh my God! That sounds Trumpian. Like, truly. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of other, other criticisms at the time. There was... Uh, Hauschka called his writings the gibberish of a madman. Yeah, it just goes on and on. Like, mm-hmm. people just mostly, for the most part, completely dismissed Reikian theory. But the Bohemians loved it. The FDA began investigating organ accumulators. And Reich was kind of, kind of wary that this would happen. So he had made patients sign an affidavit mm-hmm. that they were participating in an experiment and that no cure was promised. But his institute still soar, sold and rented organ accumulators to people. So that was the basis for the FDA going after him. Were there, like, specifications for what a <laughs> what an organ accumulator, like, has yeah. to include or look like? Like, yes. were people building their own? Yes, he on? published instructions <laughs> building them. And he had, he hired a company to build them for him and sell them. And they were very profitable because they were just boxes. Yeah. And he would sell them for a lot of money. Yeah. And Brady's article actually increased sales of organ accumulators. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, this company, it was a family company, and... This woman named uh, Callista Templeton helped her father manufacture the boxes. Mm -hmm. And her father was named Herman Templeton, and he had been a patient of Reich's and had been prescribed an organ accumulator. And he died of cancer despite using the organ accumulator. So this woman felt that her father had been exploited by Reich and that he'd given her false hope. So she was one of his biggest critics. Meanwhile, Reich was experimenting with using organ accumulators as a treatment for radiation sickness. Or that organ could deflect nuclear radiation. So he thought that this could help with the Cold War. Mm -hmm. In 1951, he discovered a deadly form of orgone energy. Uh After he was experimenting with this, tried to disperse radiation with orgone energy. And instead, he said this dark orgone energy went everywhere. Oh. Um, Maybe it had nothing to do with the actual radiation, though, right? Yeah, this is, uh, at this time, the FDA was heavily investigating him. Mm-hmm. And the investigation itself was kind of a farce because the FDA officer ended up marrying Templeton, the woman Templeton, 
Um, so the person in charge of the investigation was was sleeping with the uh, main witness, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem cool. And wh- whenever they found people who had bought organ accumulators, they all said, hey, it works great. I love my organ accumulator. So they were having a hard time getting oh witnesses. God. Because, you know, just like any quack thing, like yeah. everyone who buys it and invested like $500 in it is going to like convince themselves that it works. Yeah, yeah. like any multi-level marketing. Yeah. Like, again, Scientology. <laughs> but this dark organ is kind of reflective of his mood, I guess, because... He was under a lot of pressure. Like mm-hmm. he knew that this could destroy his whole institution, and he became very controlling around this time. One of his old friends visited him and thought that he had become schizophrenic. He accused his wife. He accused his wife of cheating on him and made her write confessions, like Stalin, like Stalinist confessions. Oh my god! And he had other people in his circle denounce her. He demanded his disciples follow his ideas absolutely. Again, he made his followers sign confessions of wrongdoing and being against him and things like that. Oh my god. So he was like becoming very paranoid. If you didn't think that the dark orgone energy was real, you could say that it was sort of a symptom of his mental state at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Or did the dark orgone energy cause his mental <laughs> instability? Probably that's much more possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this was door he coined it door which is deadly organ energy and he saw it floating around the atmosphere like a huge flotilla of airborne cancers and he stopped using organ accumulators because he thought they would accumulate the bad organ his theory about this was that atomic explosions during World War II and testing had disturbed the organ envelope that surrounds the earth in case you guys didn't realize that's why the sky is blue it's organ energy yeah I I, I thought as much yeah Mm -hmm. oh okay so when it's like gray and rainy like today are we is it just like a canopy of dark orgone energy uh that's a great question i need to research i need to read more write more in depth to answer that question so the fda in the midst of their investigation right after the oranor incident is what he called it as this is when he recorded that tape in the beginning Mm -hmm. The FDA visited and found Reich ranting and raving at them about how dangerous it was. And they came in, because he was saying there was radiation, they all came in with dosimeters, like at Chernobyl, <gasps> and radiation tape. They wore, like, secretly put it in their pockets and stuff. Oh, my God. And uh, they, there was no radiation. And Reich thought that the FDA were, was a communist conspiracy that was out to get him. So by now he had gone from being a communist to being like Joe McCarthy, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So he moved on from orgone accumulators to something called a cloud buster, which was something that was supposed to destroy the bad orgone energy. It was like almost like an orgone accumulator turned outward. Like there were these aluminum pipes, like a battery of them that looked like a Gatling gun, and they oh. were like a hose leading to water, like a bucket of water. And he thought that by pointing this... At the dark orgone energy, he could disperse it. And then also he could point it at clouds to make it rain. So it's like a giant water pick? It looks like a... <laughs> yeah, but it looks like an anti-aircraft gun. Oh, my God. It, yeah, it, looks, it, look, it basically looks like a World War II anti-aircraft gun. And there are pictures of people using this thing. It, it looks like a sci-fi movie. So the FDA was still making their case against him while he was building the cloud busters. Uh, a blueberry farmer paid him $100 to make it rain. So he took the cloud buster out to the blueberry patch and pointed it at the cloud, and a little while later it rained. So uh, haters will say that that's a coincidence, yeah. but it did rain. <laughs> haters will say it's Photoshop. <laughs> yes. So the FDA said Oregon Energy was not real, and the accumulators were misbranded, and that he was making false and misleading claims in his work about how it could cure cancer. So the FDA did take him to trial, and he never he never actually defended himself. He said they had no right to put him on trial, they had no right to say that orgone energy didn't exist, and the FDA won the suit by default. Did he claim he was a sovereign citizen? <laughs> no, that didn't exist yet, but he certainly would have. Oh. Kind of ironic, because he had a pretty good free speech case for some of it. Like, they said, the FDA said, got, got the judge to order him to not talk about orgone energy in any of his books and that any publication that he had had to take out references to orgone Mm -hmm. which seems like a huge overreach um they also said he had to stop selling orgone accumulators and stop claiming that they cured cancer Mm -hmm. and uh destroy all the existing orgone accumulators so the fda came one day to the orgone institute and made them sadly chop them all up and burned them in a big fire (laughs) and then he they also took some marketing materials that like the advertising pamphlets for the orgone boxes Mm -hmm. they took them to the incinerator in new york city and burned them they did not burn his books 
like the, his actual books, mm-hmm. just the advertising pamphlets. Okay. And that's sometimes misreported. Like sometimes they try to make it seem like it was like a Nazi thing. Like the FDA's had a big bonfire of Albrecht's books and tried yeah. to persecute him, but it, mm-hmm. it wasn't really like that. It was just his advertising materials. Mm-hmm. So he he basically used this trial as an opportunity to he he would just get up there and start ranting and raving and saying, we are flooding the East as you are dying in the Southwest. You do not play with serious natural scientific research. He began to believe that orgone-powered UFOs um, were coming to Earth and that these UFOs emitted exhaust, and that was the source of the dark orgone energy. These evil spacemen were scattering all, all over the Earth, so he uses Cloudbuster to shoot down the UFOs. Oh, shit. Around this time, his dog suffered a broken hind leg, and so he attributed that to UFO activity. But his girlfriend wrote a memoir. Well, she wrote an unpublished memoir, and she said that it was actually him getting drunk and hitting the dog with an iron bar. Oh, no! And not remembering it later. Oh, my God. So it was either that or aliens. Well, maybe maybe the orgone energy, the dark orgone energy expelled by the aliens infiltrated his brain and made him hit the dog. He wrote a whole book called Contact with Space, with which was full of his alien talk that was heavily seemed to be heavily influenced by sci-fi movies that were coming out at the time he watched so he pretty much went like the full circle of crazy <laughs> <laughs> I well if if, if you're like, um, he started at the one point and then ended up at the inevitable conclusion of uh, you know, UFOs <laughs> and spacemen well that's that's one that's one point of view that's just uh, that's just your opinion man <laughs> what if he was right yeah that's a possibility uh-huh. to mm-hmm he would watch these movies and he would think that parts of them were about him or inspired by him. There was a movie where people use a ray gun to shoot down UFOs. And he said, ah, yes, this is based on my Cloudbuster. And he said that at the trial. So he did not create a good impression during the trial. Some other just details about him during this time. He uh, took showers in his underpants. So he, never was, he was never nude. Oh, my God. By 1955, he still hadn't been sent to jail. There were very few people left around him. And he, he was alone for a time at his house, living off of canned food and potatoes and onions dug up from the garden. But he did use some of his money to build a huge dining room in the laboratory and bought fine china. He thought that Eisenhower secretly supported him and that he was going to come visit him and mm-hmm. publicly pardon him and basically save him. His uh, his last girlfriend, before he died, said that he destroyed every, every human being who came close to him. It was very bad personal relationships. It, it's In his writings about... Sex, he was very progressive. He said that men and women should both be able to have affairs outside of the marriage. But in his own life, he would go and do that. But he would suspect his girlfriend or wife of doing the same thing. He would get very suspicious and jealous and possessive and stuff. He basically turned into his father. Uh, in some way, yeah, you could say that. He's certainly emulating behaviors his father did. Finally, he had the theory that he was possibly his father. His own father was an alien. He said, do I belong to a new race on Earth, bred by men from outer space, and embraces with Earth women? Mm. Never know. Eventually, he did get sent to prison. He would stand in the prison yard and stare into the sun and say things like, they're coming. Can't you see them? They're coming. Another prisoner who was there with him remembers him being known as the flying saucer guy and the sex box man, among the other (laughs) prisoners. And unfortunately, just before he was about to be released from prison, he died of a heart attack. Dang. And that was the... And of him, but his work was carried on by his disciples. Yes. So the legacy was left. Yes. Well, and it was not the end of orgonomy. Yeah. He, he did make an impact on popular culture in strange places. Uh, there was a movie called Barbarella, mm-hmm. yeah. where there was an, a parody of an orgone accumulator in it, where an evil scientist <laughs> attempts to kill Barbarella with pleasure by putting her in this box. Oh my god. Um, and the scientist's name was Duran Durand. Yes. The band Duran Duran is named after that. Right. Then in the movie Sleeper by Woody Allen, where he... Woody Allen makes up, Yes, Woody Allen makes up in the future. It's called... It's a box called The Orgasmatron. Mm-hmm. And while I was working on this episode, I played a video game called Amnesia, A Machine for Pigs, where you explore a giant, like, Lovecraftian factory where people are turned into pig hybrids. What? <laughs> and there's a room full of boxes... They're described as orgone chambers. Oh my oh god. My. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty, just funny, funny coincidence. So you're playing the game and it just happened? Yeah. And you didn't know it was coming? Yeah. Oh my god, were you like, like, ah! Yeah, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it's, it's orgone energy! I was like, oh no. Yeah, so that's that. Yeah, and, and uh, so in the next episode we'll talk about the legacy of Reiki and therapy and 
what it's like to go through Reiki and therapy. We'll talk to someone who, who did it. Bye. Much of the research for this episode came from the fantastic book by Christopher Turner called Adventures in the Orgasmatron, and also a biography called Fire on the Earth by Myron Sharaf. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Berendon. Thank you for listening.